history according to Luke 17, part 1, spoken by Pastor Peter Ahn. When I first went to seminary back in 2000, I was so excited to go to school. And that's not normal for me because if you know my story, I'm not an academic at all. But the road to going to seminary, feeling that God called me to be a pastor was really a calling that I felt like was placed upon my life. And so when we finally got to California and, I, and my first semester of classes, I mean, it was like, like heaven for me. I sat in the front in every class. I had a tape recorder. I tape recorded every lecture. And I'd go back in the library and I would listen to it and I would make sure I take more copious notes. Right? I did that for every class. The class that I was looking forward to the most was a class that everyone had talked about. It's a class taught by Dr. Chap Clark. And it was a class called Foundations of Ministry. Everyone, everyone just raved about how great of a teacher he is and, and, and the things that you're going to learn. They're really going to be foundational for you to be a pastor. And so I was excited. I was sitting in the front of the class. It was a huge lecture hall. And he comes just walking in with this ginormous painting of Rembrandt's, Rembrandt's prodigal son. Many of you know what that painting looks like. I mean, I know it's kind of a bad picture there because it's hard to see. But he puts, gets this huge picture and he, light, he puts it right on top of the piano. And the first words, and I'm waiting to hear what he's going to say. And he just says, why do you want to be a pastor? Are you crazy? He said, do you know it's one of the worst jobs in America? And you know what it is? A few years ago, New York Times came out with an article, Worst Jobs in America. Number two, worst job in America is to be a pastor. Do you know who we beat out? The people who make dynamite. <laughs> Serious, I'm not joking. Look it up, archive it, Google it. You know who beat us? Loggers. Because cutting trees has the highest mortality rate in any other profession. No other profession where more people die in doing a certain job than loggers. And we're number two. And the reason why, they said there's no other profession that destroys the family than the role of, than, than the, the profession of ministry. And, uh, and then the other reason why they say it's the second worst job in America is because on average they say clergy will die 10 years before an average American. So I'm gonna die 10 years before you. That's, that's according to the study because they're saying that the stress levels that they have to endure with. And so he's in this class and he says, why do you wanna be a pastor? It's the worst job in America, and the people that you serve will never accept you for who you are. They'll only love you if you can give them something. God forbid you drive in an Audi and park in front of your church parking lot. What people will say to you, they'll say you're stealing church money to buy an Audi, right? And he's like, why would you want to be a pastor? And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I don't know why anymore. Why do I want to be a pastor? This guy's painting such a morbid picture. And he says, you're never going to last in ministry if you don't look at this picture every day. He says, you have to remind yourself that you are the prodigal son and that you are God's beloved in whom he is well pleased with. And he said, the only way you're gonna fully know that, and this is where I get that term. You're probably wondering, where does he get this term? He says, the only way you'll know that regularly is if you find a soulmate. He says, a soulmate is not your wife, it's not your husband, but it's somebody whom you connect with regularly and you share the darkest areas to your soul with. When he shared that, I realized that up until that point, I had never had a relationship like that. I never had a relationship with anyone where I shared the darkest areas to my soul. And at that time, I just looked at this guy who was sitting two seats away from me, and I looked at him, he looked at me, and I said, you want to be my soulmate? <laughs> and he said, sure. And so after class, 
We just talked, and his name is John Cruz. He grew up in Burt, Iowa, population of 600 people. I told him I grew up with more people in my apartment complex in Queens. <laughs> that's how many people live. That's, how many, that's the place where I grew up. We couldn't be any different, blonde hair, blue eyes, right? And I'm this Asian guy. And so we just started connecting, and we started doing life. And really what he was saying at the end of the day, he was saying discipleship is relational. That you cannot be a disciple unless you are in relationships with people. How you live in relationships with people will often be a good barometer of determining how your relationship is with God. It cannot, it cannot be separate. They're actually really connected together. And so today, as, as Jesus has been on this topic, as we've been looking at Luke, uh, in the last couple of months, he's really been teaching us this great subject matter of discipleship. And Jesus is going to teach us again that discipleship is all about relationships. That if we're not in healthy relationships with other people, we cannot be in a healthy relationship with God. And so what Jesus is going to do today in Luke chapter 17, is going to teach us two things in how we can improve or deepen our relationships with people, especially those we don't get along well with. All right? And maybe those that we kind of don't get along well with us. He's going to give us two insights in how we can better do that. And then he's going to teach us two things in how you and I can deepen our relationship with God. Because again, discipleship is relational. We cannot be a disciple and say that we're not in relationships with people. It's impossible. And so uh, let's find out what Jesus has to say. So turn with me to Luke chapter 17. We'll look at the first 10 verses here. Luke chapter 17, first 10 verses. Here are the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Is Jesus crazy? Because if somebody sins against you seven times in one day, he says, you got to forgive them all seven times. That's kind of crazy. But he says, that's what disciples do. That's what disciples do. So then, of course, the apostles then say, well, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. We need a lot of faith. We're going to forgive that many times. And in verse 6, he replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have, only, we have only done our duty. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads. And so, Lord, you continue to teach us really difficult teachings on how to be a disciple. And again, I just ask that you would come and, and just anoint this time. I pray that these words would jump out and, and not only just uh, be seen visually with our eyes, but, God, that it would reach into the depths of our hearts. And would you help us, God, to be better disciples, understanding, God, that without relationships, we really can't say we follow you. It's impossible. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll just help us right now. Help us to navigate through this text. And may we be able to make sense of it. May we learn and feel empowered and encouraged to live more passionately for you. So I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room will be pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said, 
Amen. All right, so what do we learn about relational discipleship? It's really what the title of the sermon is. The first thing we learn about relational discipleship is that relational discipleship occurs when we are not a stumbling block, all right? Relational discipleship occurs when you are not a stumbling block. Now, none of us in this room, I don't think you ever sit and ask yourself, am I a stumbling block? We don't, that's not a typical thing that disciples actually ask themselves. But Jesus says we have to be cognizant of that. Look at verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. In the previous chapters, when Jesus talks about discipleship, he's teaching the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and the disciples, right? In this particular passage, it's just to the disciples. And that's important for us to recognize because Jesus is talking to the church community. Why? Because the church community is the community of disciples. For Jesus, there is no such thing as Christians and disciples. For those who say they believe in Jesus, Jesus sees you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Amen? You are all disciples, all right? Turn to your neighbor and just say, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Say that to your neighbor. Oh, you got to share a little more authority than that. We're all disciples. Be proud of that. Be proud of it. And so I think for this teaching that he's teaching us, it really should apply to us and how we connect and relate to one another here in the church. And the question simply is this. Are you a stumbling block in this church? Are your words, your actions or inactions, are they stumbling people to sin? Those are important questions for us to ask because the warning is harsh. Jesus says, if you are, it's better for you to just to tie a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the ocean. A millstone was a large, heavy stone that would often be pulled by donkeys to grind flour back in the first century. So it was this huge piece of stone. Jesus is saying, I understand when you sin. Sin is just a part of life. He knows the brokenness of who we are. But he says, if you are my disciple and you call somebody else to sin, better that you just tie a big stone around your neck and jump into the ocean because that's how severely I'm going to deal with you. So are you a stumbling block today? Are you causing other people in this church to potentially sin or fall into sin? You know, I think for many of us, we're a stumbling block when it's always about us. And you see, the great thing about disciples, and we're going to learn this later on, but the great thing about disciples is that discipleship and disciples never really make it about themselves. It's always about others. It's about God. That's the perspective that they have. But when everything becomes about us, then whether you know this or not, perhaps you will eventually be a stumbling block in our church in our church. And that's something that God is saying we have to be careful of because discipleship is so relational that we even have to be cognizant of the fact that where are we causing other people to sin? How are your actions, your inactions, your words, have they caused the little ones to sin? Now the little ones, let's just define what the little ones are. Little ones aren't necessarily just our kids here in the church, although it could be, but little ones are people who are new Christians and people who I consider to be like newcomers, all right? Those are the little ones. And Jesus says, these little ones, we have to make sure as we're older and we've been here for a while, that we care for them and love them, make sure that they're experiencing God, making sure that our actions or inactions or our words do not become a stumbling block. So be careful. Be careful when you gossip with someone in this church. 
Because whether you know it or not, you may be dividing this church more so than you, than you thought. And I got to be honest, I think gossiping is something that's very natural for all of us. And, and let me just kind of define what gossip is. If you're like, if you have a soulmate in this church and you're sharing with some people that have really hurt you and, and you're kind of confiding in them, that's not gossip. That's just kind of trying to get more spiritual direction and things like that. Gossip is when you talk to people in the church, especially even the young ones, and you start talking bad about someone so that they can see them in that bad light. That's gossip. And you're causing them to stumble because then they see you doing that. And then before you know it, then as they stay longer in this church, they're going to start gossiping with other people as well. That happens. It happens all the time. Or how about a lot of us when we go out and have fun with people and in the spirit of trying to have fun, what do we do sometimes? We say, hey, have another drink. Have another drink. Have another drink. Have another drink. And before you know it, the person is completely wasted because you kept encouraging them to drink and drink and drink. Be careful what you do, what you say, what you don't do. It does affect people in this church. We have to be careful. We have to care for that because if we're not going to do that as disciples, then who's going to do it in this church? It can't just be me and other people, like staff members. It's got to be all of us saying, am I a a stumbling block to others in this church, especially the younger ones? How do I need to be careful with what I say and what I do or what I don't do? It's It's a hard warning, but it's a warning for disciples, for people in the church. Years ago, somebody came to me, just started coming to our church, and, and they said that they're thinking about becoming a partner. They came out to the class and everything, and they said, but you know, uh, after talking to somebody in our church who's been a part of us for a while, they told them not to. They said, you can get all the same benefits uh, at Metro as a partner does, so you shouldn't even be a partner at the church. And so the person was wrestling with that. That person who encouraged that person not to be a partner was being a stumbling block. Because in the Bible, very clearly in the New Testament, you'll know this if you take partnership class, every New Testament believer associated themselves deeply with the church body. And you know why partnership at the end is such an important deal? Because the difference between partners and people who come out to the church is really at the end of the day, the difference between consumers and those who say, this is my church. Because those who aren't partners, what I find over the years, if something were to happen, like somebody would tick them off or, or something, they felt like they weren't getting it enough from the church, they would leave. But those who are partners will actually stick around and try to work it through. They'll work hard at it because they know this is their church. This is their community. And I want to encourage you all, honestly, because this is about your discipleship. It's not, not necessarily about my discipleship, but it's about your discipleship. If this is your church, what's holding you back for saying, I'm no longer going to be a consumer anymore, and I'm going to be a part of the life of this church, that I'm going to help this church live out the vision which God has called it to live out? That's something that we have to ask ourselves. And when we're not doing that, Perhaps maybe our actions or inactions or our words are creating to be a stumbling block to other people in the church, especially the young ones. Because they're looking and they're saying, well, you know, what's going on? If, if, if you're not going to take that step, then why should I? Serving, if you're not going to serve, why should I take that step, right? And so our actions, our inactions, our words do matter. And we got to be careful that we're not a stumbling block to the younger people in this church. I know this is a hard warning that Jesus Christ gives to us. But again, he's talking to all of us here who cares about our discipleship. And I don't know when was the last time we ever asked ourselves, am I a stumbling block today? Am I a stumbling block? Jesus says, correct that behavior quickly. Because if not, it's not going to bode well for you at the end.
all right? Am I a stumbling block? Relational discipleship occurs when we are not a stumbling block. The second thing, relational discipleship that we learn is that relational discipleship occurs when we forgive one another. Relational discipleship occurs when we forgive one another. Verse 3, so watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. For Jesus, forgiveness is not optional. For a disciple, it is absolutely mandatory. He cares about the preservation of community. And there is no way you and I can live in Christian community if we're not willing to forgive each other. So can I just kind of save you a little suspense? If you choose to live in community with people in this church, they will hurt you. It's just part of being in community. They will say things that might be insensitive to hurt you. Right? And you might do the same for them. It's just part of being in community. Come on, we know that. If you're in relationships with anyone, I mean, married couples, you know that. When you're married to somebody, I mean, could you imagine if your spouse never hurt you? I mean, you'd be like amazed, right? But they do. It's part of being in a relationship. And it's the same way with Christians. As we live in a relationship with one another in church, yes, we will say things. We may do things to hurt one another. But our goal is to forgive one another. Because that's the only way this community can be preserved. Because if we're unwilling to forgive, then our bitterness will continue to overflow into other relationships in our life. But I love what Jesus is doing here because there's a progression. The progression is first you must rebuke before you forgive. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? How many of you have ever rebuked somebody? Now, yeah, there you go, Tira. I'm not surprised, sister. I am not surprised. All right? But rebuking, let me just kind of, because I think for us, you know, because we struggle and we don't want somebody to get mad. And honestly, I get it. You don't want to hurt anyone. I understand that. I'm like that as well. But if we're not willing to share with someone what they did and what they said might have hurt us, how can you say you believe that you're a disciple? Because if you forgive too quickly, and we do this too as Christians, we think we, oh, we just got to forgive this person right away. And if they say, hey, I'm sorry for what I did. And maybe some, sometimes Christians, they get used to just saying I'm sorry because they've hurt so many people in their lives so that they know that they've done something wrong. I'm sorry. But they may need to hear what, you've, what they've done to you so that they realize that in the next relationship that they're in with somebody in this church, that they'll be more careful and they won't say things or do things to hurt the other person. If you don't share with them the rebuke, how are they going to know? How are they going to fully understand? And so we can't even be too quick to forgive, although we have to forgive but we should be careful to be so quickly to forgive somebody if they've really deeply hurt us. The rebuking is important because it forces the relationship to continue. When you don't rebuke, what do you usually do? Passive-aggressively walk away from that relationship. If you take the partnership class, one of the things that we talk about this, because know, I know this is going to happen, and I tell, and I tell the, the people that take the class, I say, how do you know you need to talk to somebody and, and maybe offer a rebuke? Or ask for forgiveness, like if you think about them all the time. Like you're eating dinner and you think about somebody in this church and what they said to you. That's a clear sign you gotta probably rebuke them, right? Or I should just meet up with them. I don't wanna say that word because that, that word might be really hard for some of you, right? Or the, the real clear, obvious one is if you're at church and you see them and you avoid them, like you're going to get some coffee and, you, and they're at the coffee, you're like, whoa, okay, I'm going to the bathroom. <laughs> Clearly, you might need to get together with them and have a conversation. Hey, Jesus died for this community. 
He died for this community. He died because he believed that we can one day be one. That was the very last prayer he prayed before he was crucified on the cross in John 16. He said, Father, make them one so the whole world will know that you have sent me. Our community, how we preserve it and protect it and nurture it does matter. It's not just for your benefit, but it's for the benefit of the younger ones, for the benefit of the world and what God has called us to do as a church. And so we have to learn to rebuke, but we also have to learn to forgive. That you can't hold, hold that too long because if you do, without you even knowing, you're, it's going to start to s- sort of spill over to other relationships in your life. And the warning of us, of people or disciples unwilling to forgive really is as harsh as it gets for Jesus. It says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Jesus is basically saying that to the degree that you're able to forgive other people will be the same degree that God will forgive you. So you can't just go to God and say, forgive me of my sins, God, of what I've done and what I've done to hurt you and expect God to forgive you if you're unwilling to forgive other people. Now, it's a process, yes, I know that. And you have to enter into that process, but you gotta work real hard and you gotta care about it. If you don't care about this, you're never, ever going to care. You're never gonna focus on it. It's not gonna even be a thought for you. But what Jesus wants us to realize is that relational discipleship cares about this community, the preservation of this community. And so we have to. We have to be willing to ask ourselves, who do we need to talk to and confront, rebuke, and also share? And who do we need to ask for forgiveness today? So the, so the questions you need to wrestle with today is this. Who do you need to forgive in this church? Who do you need to forgive in this church? Who needs to know that they've wronged you? Who? Who do you have to tell Say, you know what? I've been hurt by what you said or what you did. What's really stopping you from forgiving today? What are some of the things that's preventing you from forgiving someone? And what's really stopping you from confronting someone today in this church? And the last thing is, who do you need to ask forgiveness to? Because some of you might be the ones who actually have hurt the person. And maybe that person is too nervous or too scared, intimidated to come to you. And maybe you got to take that first step and say, listen, I'm sorry for what I said or what I did. Can I hear what, how you feel about it? Those are people who truly care. Those are disciples of Jesus Christ who care about this community because this community is the community in which Jesus Christ came and died for 2,000 years ago. So you and I must care about the health of this community. Amen? Amen. Don't wait till you feel good about it to forgive someone. It's never going to happen. If you're going to wait to forgive somebody and say, you know what, I'll do it when I feel good about it, It'll never happen. Because forgiveness is not an emotion. It's a decision that you make. Forgiveness is a decision you make. It's not an emotion that you feel. And I think the reason why many of us are struggling today in our relationships with God, in our discipleship, is because we're not willing to forgive other people. There's a direct correlation between God's mercy being dispensed upon our lives based upon how we are able to dispense mercy and grace to others who've wronged us. You know you've really forgiven someone when you want the best for them. That's sort of the question you ask. Do I want the best for this person now? Then you know you've forgiven that person. About a year and a half ago, uh, this couple from another church, they're leaders in their church, uh, they were really struggling. I got the call from the wife. Uh, She said, can I please meet with you, me and my husband? I said, sure. I said, about a week and a half or so. I looked at my calendar, and we met up about a week and a half. 
And so we met up, and, uh, and she sounded so desperate on the phone, but when I met her, I was a little shocked by, like, her cadence and, like, her presence. She was really happy. She had a big smile. She goes, I was going to call you and actually just cancel. I don't think we need you anymore. I said, really? I said, well, what's up? What's going on? I said, well, about a week and a half ago, I found out that my husband cheated on me again. This is not the first time. And she said, but you know what? I've been able to forgive him. And I said, oh, how were you able to do that so soon? She said, well, I went to a, a, a healing service, and a pastor prayed for me, and I just felt the spirit inside of me just kind of grow. And he gave me the, the courage to forgive my husband. And I just looked at her, and I, I kind of know her tradition. I, said, I looked at her, and I said, listen, I think you're on that journey to forgiving him, but you haven't fully forgiven him yet. I said, you got to be able to rebuke him and share what he's done to you and how that's completely impacted you and hurt you. That if you don't share that, then, I mean, what's to say that he's not going to go and do that again? It's more, he's done it more than once. And so we talked about this, and, and, and it was just, you see her, her, her presence, her countenance is changing, and she started to really start pondering upon it. And I said, you need to meet with a counselor. You guys got to get professional Christian counseling through this and work together weekly and work through this. And you're going to hit a wall, I guarantee you. You'll hit a wall, but that's important for the forgiveness process. And so she took my advice. They did go to counseling. They struggled a lot through it all, but they're still married and doing better now today. You see, forgiveness is something that you can't rush. It needs to also, before you forgive, what needs to be present is you sharing how much the person hurts you. That rebuking is key. We are to forgive, but Christians, we got to be careful because sometimes we forgive too quickly. And sometimes we got to really think about it. And that rebuking is really key before you forgive. Sharing how much somebody has really hurt you before you actually forgive someone. And so in this community that we call Metro Community, and this is not your church, I'm talking about your church that you attend right now. Are you willing to love that community that much? And we need to because Christ loved it that much. And we need to love it and show it that kind of love by offering our rebuke and our forgiveness to those who've hurt us. Amen? Amen. That's what it means to be a disciple of God. That's what Jesus is giving this harsh teaching just to his disciples. He's talking to us about it, all right? Third, relational discipleship occurs when we have a little bit of faith. Relational discipleship occurs when we have a little bit of faith. Look at verse 5. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Because again, he's saying you got to forgive seven times in a day. So they're just saying, I don't have enough faith for this, God, Jesus. Could you increase our faith? And look at how Jesus replies. How many times have we said to God, I need more faith. I can't do this without more faith. Look at how Jesus replies. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. That's pretty crazy. You see, all you need as a disciple, a relational disciple, all you need is a little bit of faith. You don't need a lot of faith. So many of us, when we think about what we need to do in life and how we need to pursue God in certain ways, we think we need a whole lot of faith. But Jesus says, no, it's not about how much faith you have. I just want some faith to be present in you. That's all you need to do anything God may be calling you to do. Amen? So don't use your lack of faith as an excuse to exempt yourself from doing certain things for God. Because God just expects you just to have a little bit of faith. As long as you have that, then go forward with your life. Stop saying, you know, I don't have enough faith to lead a small group. I don't have enough faith to sing on this worship team or play on this worship team. 
I don't have enough faith to quit my job and pursue a career path that I know is not going to be more, is not going to be lucrative, but I'll be happier. God, would you increase my faith so I can do that? God's saying, no, you have enough faith. Metro Community Church, you have enough faith to do whatever God is calling you to do today. Amen? Because all you need is a little bit. You don't need a lot. And don't ever use that as an excuse. I think the enemy uses that so that he can discourage us and say, you know what? You can't do it. Look how little your faith is. Jesus says, if it's the size of a mustard seed, you can tell this tree to uproot itself and throw itself into the, into the sea and I'll do it. That's all the faith you and I need. So stop thinking you need to grow this faith because your faith will grow as you take these steps. But don't think you need to be at a certain level of maturation in your faith to pursue something that God is calling you to do. Because all he's saying, all you need is a little bit of faith. Faith is believing that God will help you to accomplish something that cannot be done on your own. That's what faith is. And he wants you and I to grow in our faith in that. That we would believe that as long as we believe in God a little bit, it goes a long way in God's economy. And you have to believe that. Now, please don't misassociate that or sort of uh, think that what that means is that whatever you want, as long as you have faith, God will do it. No, God's not your genie. He's not like this wizard that does whatever you want him to do. No, faith is about you trusting and saying, God, I submit myself and I will go where you are leading me to go. That's faith. Even if it means rejection. Even if it means failure. That's part of having faith. Because those are some of the places, that's the laboratory in which your faith will really grow. When, you've, when you experience rejection and failure, it's not during the great moments. So much of discipleship at the end of the day, I believe, is learning to wrestle with God. Like Jacob did on the mountain. He even lost a rib because of that. Have you wrestled with God? All you need is a little bit of faith. Going through the ebbs and flow of life, but trusting that your God knows what's best for you and trusting in him. You don't need a lot of faith to move forward. Man, I hope that encourages you. That encourages me so much this week. Honestly, when I got back from my sabbatical, it has been nonstop. You need to know this. Poor Kevin and the leadership team, they've met multiple times because we hired a consultant to come to our church to help us to think about raising money for a capital campaign. And that really means raising money for a building, right, one day. We're at 13 years of our church's life. We're ready to, to have our own home. I don't know about you, but we're ready to have our own home. Amen? We are. Especially after last Sunday, we couldn't even use the cafeteria to do Thanksgiving. Like, we just have to follow the limitations and the rules set for the school, which is fine. We're happy to do that. But how amazing ministry would continue to unfold in this church if we had our own space, right? And we're already maxed out in this facility right now. I mean, if we can have a, a sanctuary twice the size, could you imagine what more ministry we can do? And you know the fastest growing ministry in our church is the youth and the children's ministry? It's growing like 25% a year. We can't keep up with that rate. And there's no space to put them anymore. Like when the youth group gets together, the junior high and senior high, there isn't a room that could fit them. It's really tight because, you know, these big rooms, there's only a few of them here. This one in the media center, that's it. Everyone else has to be in a classroom. And so it's really challenging for our church. And so we need to serve our church better in that way. And a building would help us to do that, right? And then not only for us, what we want to do is we want to build a community center. So we use the facilities on Sundays. We can use it on other days. But we're really also cognizant and saying, you know what, we want to be a, a place where we can serve this community and in the I was told this, I thought we did have a community center in Englewood, but in the history of the city, there's never been a community center. There's always been like some sorts, like an abridged version of one. 
but there was never a dedicated space. And as a result of that, even till this day in Englewood, crime is high, especially amongst youth. And even till this day, they send the highest number of children to juvenile detention centers because there's no place for these kids to be after school. And so this community center envisions that we'd be able to have a place where they can come and they can participate in in a recreational activity that Pastor Clay does. He does basketball right now with middle school age kids. That there'll be recreational activities where they can come and be a part and learn the importance of working together in a team. That we'd have leagues and stuff like that. And I love what Clay's doing is because he's doing that, but he's saying, we also need to tutor you before you play basketball. Make sure you're doing well in school. Right, Metro Life through you know Michael W. Smith's leadership and Steve Bang, they're leading these juniors and seniors in Englewood that are quote unquote the most at risk. Some of these kids come from families where their parents have never graduated from high school. Some of them come from parents where their families have never been to college. What I love about that program is that we're destroying generational cycles of lack of education. And we're changing the trajectory of people's genealogy where they're able to get higher education now because of a program like that. The thought that we can offer that to more students in Englewood would be phenomenal. Arts, it's huge for us. We hope to have an arts center where it would be a hub for people in the city to come and to engage with arts, with God, and also with their own creative minds that we can invite them to be there. Hub, we do like these uh, art camps in the summer for kids here in the city, but to do more. I mean, it's a dream. It's amazing for us to think about doing something like this where we can make an impact. I love to get young entrepreneurs together in Englewood that want to start businesses. And maybe this could be like a, critic, like, a, like a place where the creatives can come. And some of you guys who are great at business could mentor them. How amazing would that be? Some of you successful men and women, you know how to do this stuff. You could sit down with them and maybe come up with a strat plan for them and help them to see the realities that it's great that you have a dream. But if you can't put a strategy behind it, that dream will never come. And you help them with a small business. I mean, just things like that. That's what we're hoping. And so thinking about that, and we've been meeting like at, you know, in, at nights a lot and just talking about this, meeting with our consultant. And in three years, our goal is to raise $2.5 million so that we can get a building. right? And for me, that's a lot of money. It's hard enough for us to make mud budget every year. Think about in three years, we've got to try to raise $2.5 million. And like the disciples, I said to God, increase our faith. And this passage just reminded me, you don't need a lot of faith to do this, Peter. You just need a little bit. And it's not me. It's all of us. Our little faith of a mustard seed, as we come together and believe in this, that we could be doing something that's never been done in the history of the city. And we can be a part of that. Our kids could be a part of that. It just excites me. I get goosebumps thinking about it. But it's just a little bit of faith that's required. You don't need a lot of faith to do something for God. You just need a little bit. And so what's holding you back then? All God is asking for is your mustard seed of faith. May you be encouraged to move forward because relational discipleship knows that as you're in relationship with God and he calls you to do something, you don't need a lot of faith to do it. You just need a little bit. Just a little faith. A little faith will go a long way. And the very last thing we see here, relational discipleship occurs when we serve God with no strings attached. When we serve God with no strings attached. Verse 7. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank 
the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. What is Jesus saying here? Like you kind of read, they're like, what are you talking about? All right, here it is. All right, stop being a diva. Stop being a spiritual diva. A lot of us, we, we grew up in this entitled generation, and we think as Christians that somehow we're entitled, that as we serve God, that God should say thank you to us, or that God should give us certain things. So we're serving God with strings attached, basically. And Jesus is saying, you got to stop that because you're just a servant. And that word servant in the Greek is the same word for slave, doulos. And he's saying, does a master say thank you to his servants? No, because they're just doing their duty. When you serve God in any capacity in this church, outside this church, don't expect to thank you. Don't expect God to give you certain things because you're serving him. Just know you're doing your duty because he is our master and we are the servants. Does that make sense? You'll go deeper in your relation with God when you know that your position that you stand before God. That he is our master and we are his servant. Now, of course, God will reward us when we do good things. I mean, we, we learn in the Bible that on the day of judgment, we will all receive what we, put at, what we put forth in this world, right? But God rewards those who serve and don't even care about getting a reward. And so when you serve God, serve him with no strings attached. We do it all the time, don't we? And so because we have this entitled mentality and we put these strings on, Many times God becomes our servant and we become the master. And I talked a little bit about that last week. And so we got to be careful how we approach this relationship. Understand that, yes, we are God's child, but at the same time, we're his servant. And we should be so honored to serve the master and do whatever it takes to serve him. That's the posture he wants you and I to have, that we got to be careful. I mean, I just, I remember when I was growing up in, in high school, when I became a Christian, I mean, radical. I became a radical follower for God. I thought I had to like, you know, preach the gospel all the time, go out and try to evangelize the people, right? So I do that, hoping to feel better about myself. That's a string. Like, I, I, I want to be on the worship team, so I learned how to play the guitar. I learned, I work, I, I practice so hard to play the guitar, hours and hours a day. But there was a string attached to that. You know what I wanted? That hopefully if I can be a worship leader, maybe I'll get a girlfriend. Because <laughs> Christian women love worship leaders. <laughs> love them, absolutely love them. You don't even have to be that good looking to get a beautiful woman. And so, like, for me, like, growing up, I'm like, I'm going to learn. I practice so hard, hours and hours and hours to learn how to play with not even looking at the fretboard and stuff and just, like, worshiping and spirit. But there was a string attached to that. So I was like, God, let me get a girlfriend. It never worked. <laughs> but it was a string. What strings are you attaching today to your service to God? Really, what strings are you attaching? Do you expect them to get you a job? Do you expect you to get you out of, of, of bankruptcy? Do you expect them to help you to grow your family because you're really struggling to do that right now? Do you expect them to sort of make sense of the mess that is your life today? I get all those things are important. But if you serve with that string attached, you won't know the depth of how amazing your God is. And I think sometimes God is saying, if you can't see how amazing I am by what I've already done for you through Jesus Christ, then even an answer prayer request is not going to work. So why should I even answer that? You are the servant. He is the master. Don't serve with strings attached because disciples serve with no strings 
attached. This church would never be where it's at today if it wasn't for key servants in the beginning of our church. We only had 11 people when we first started. And without certain people in this church that just served with no strings attached, there is no way we would be where we are today. And really, the couple that I just want to highlight is Evan and Shirley. I still remember the first time when I shared the vision with Evan. He got into this horrible bike accident. He almost died, right? Literally almost died. And so I just called him, see how you're doing. And then I just said, hey, you know, God gave me a vision to start a church when I graduate in two years. You want to be a part of it? And so we talked about 45 minutes. And he said, that's interesting. And so he had to go. I think he had to go back to work. And so uh, then he calls me at night, and we talk for four hours while I'm in seminary. And he's getting excited. I'm getting even more excited because I'm making this stuff up just in my head. I didn't really think about it all. But I just start thinking about it. I'm telling him. He's getting excited. And he says, I need about a week to pray about this and to see if this is going to happen, if, I, if I'll join you in this church plant. He called me back the next day and says, I'm in. And he says, and you know what? I'm engaged to marry Shirley You Talk about the greatest two-for-one deal in the history of church planting. I got it, right? Like Shirley's a children's pastor. She's awesome. And, you know, she was teaching special ed at that time. She got a master's degree in special needs education and stuff. And so, like, I was like, fantastic. So for 18 months, they prayed every Wednesday night with a group of people in their apartments. Before I even came out to California, they prayed every Wednesday nights. And I prayed in California in my apartment with a couple people just saying, hey, just come and join us and pray for Metro. Serve with no strings attached. When I got there, you know, he said, you know, we're thinking about buying a house. We want to buy a house. We thought about buying a house like around Edison because he worked around that area. And he said, but you know what? We'll be too far from the church. He said, so we're going to just buy a little condo in Hackensack. And that's where our church started in their apartment. They gave up a house, a nice-sized house, the luxuries of what that could be, and even distance to work to be a part of the church plant. Ultimate sacrifice with no strings attached. Built our first website. Did everything. He did eight, nine different things to start a church. Surely, the only person that was in the children's ministry was my daughter, Christina. And you would think that would discourage somebody because that would discourage me. But she, her joy, her love, it didn't matter if it was one, two, three, 100, 200. Her intensity and her love for children is exactly the same. It doesn't matter how many kids are there. And you know, in the beginning, we met in a bar in our church. It was at Fourth Lee Athletic Club, but the basement was a bar. She had to take shower curtains and cover up all the liquor every week so the kids wouldn't see it. And there was a big Budweiser sign by the pool table. She had to build a, uh, like a big thing and, and covered it up saying Metro Kids, a banner to cover it every week so kids wouldn't see Budweiser. We, she said she didn't want that to be the first words that they say, Budweiser. <laughs> she never complained and said, you know what, Peter, we got to get out of here. This is not right for, this is not, this is not conducive for a children environment. And it wasn't. We got to go to a bigger place. Come on, I'm, look what, I'm already giving up a lot for you. We never paid her for a few years because we didn't have the money. You know, she said, you know, I used to get paid full time for this position, but, but you know what? Like, what's going on? How come you're not paying me now? She never cared about it. She served with no strings attached, and she blew up that ministry. It's a legacy that she leaves behind because now she's overseeing the special needs ministry in our church, that God's given her that vision. But this church would not be where it is today if it wasn't for servants who served with no strings attached. And I'm telling you, we have a nice history. We do. And I love to look back and reminisce from time to time. But Metro, our best days are still ahead of us. I believe that. They truly are. But it's going to require all of your mustard seed of faith to come together. 
to give you the audacity to forgive people and confront them if they've hurt you? To ask yourself, am I being a stumbling block to this, to this congregation? It's only gonna take that little mustard seed of faith. And also for you to say, can I start serving this church and serve its people with no strings attached? God has raised up so many servants who do that today with no strings attached. And I don't wanna just name names. I know I'm gonna forget so many others. I don't wanna offend you. But there's so many people right now, I do believe, that are serving with no strings attached. And we are who we are because of their service to this church. But there's so many of us that can get involved and say, you know what, we're going to do the same. We're going to be the ones who create, the, create and preserve this community in which God has called us to create. You and I should never calculate our service to the Lord. We should have the mentality of saying, God, whatever it takes, I will do whatever it takes to serve my master better. And that's my hope and prayer for you because relational discipleship occurs when you're not a stumbling block to somebody in this church, when you can forgive them, forgive them with your heart, when you can serve with no strings attached, and when you realize all you need is a little bit of faith to follow God today. Let's pray.